This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 27. We're looking tonight at 27 and 28. These two chapters really go together. What I'd like us to do this evening is to read through the two chapters just to hear what they're saying and then kind of go through and summarize and look at a few things along the way and then talk about several ways that we might uh, learn from this passage, ways of discerning what is true from what is not, because that really comes down to what's going on in this passage. Conflicting prophets, conflicting message, uh, very different. They can't both be right. And the question, which is right? Of course, the book's named Jeremiah, not Hananiah. So we, we, we pretty much know, you and I do, but imagine that you're some of these people who are hearing one man on the one hand and another man on the other hand who do you listen to? Which one's telling the truth? Which one is right? So let's start chapter 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, king of Moab, king of the sons of Ammon, king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon, by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his, of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon... I will punish that nation with a sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For it is a lie they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it's a lie they are prophesying to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. 
Then I spoke to the priests and to all this people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you, saying, Behold, the vessel of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon. For it is a lie they are prophesying to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a desolation? If they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts, that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem, may not go to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, concerning the pillars, the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take away. When he took into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. In that same year, the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah, the prophet, in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you've prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Yet, hear now this word I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace... When the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. And the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars from off the neck of Jeremiah, prophet, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Go, tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, which you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. For I have given to him even the beasts of the field. And Jeremiah the prophet said to prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, prophet Hananiah died. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the word of God, for your word tonight, and pray that as we study your word, you would give us, give us clear minds in this late hour to, uh, to, to understand and learn, uh, to grow. Father, we pray for your spirit to minister your truth to us, to help us grow in the grace of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. The passage begins in 27.1 that this is in the reign of Zedekiah. And if you look toward the end of 2 Kings, you see a succession of kings taking place there at the end. There was Jehoiakim uh, was king, and then Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin, uh, known here as Jeconiah, is taken into captivity in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar sets a puppet king, Zedekiah, actually uh, Jehoiachin's uh, uncle on uh, the throne, puppet king over Judah. And that's the Zedekiah that is mentioned here, son of Josiah, king of Judah. And this word comes to the Lord. Well, chapter 27 basically is Jeremiah giving this message of the Lord to three different audiences. First of all, he puts this yoke on his neck. Make yourself straps and yoke bars, a message in symbol, that yoke representing the rule, the yoke of Babylon. Now, you'll recall Jeremiah's message from the Lord has been that Judah should submit to her discipline. They should surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. They should go into exile, uh, which, of course, is a dangerous message. It's, a, it's politically a treasonous message. But that is the message that he has. And so Jeremiah, with this message and symbol, this either an oxen yoke uh, or a yoke that uh, a slave would use for carrying water. We've seen both, familiar with both. Uh, but this yoke on his neck to represent uh, being ruled, uh, the yoke representing, of course, uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the first time he gives the message, it's to envoys from the various countries mentioned here who are in Jerusalem. Uh, he mentions them, Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, Tyre, Sidon. And they've come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, probably plotting some sort of overthrow, some sort of revolt or rebellion that apparently did not take place because there's no record of it taking place. But that may well be, given the time period where they are, some up, upheaval going on in Babylon. Uh, the temptation to form a coalition and rebel uh, may have been strong. And so that's probably why they've come together and also why Jeremiah comes with this message telling them to submit to the yoke of Babylon and not to Try to rebel. There's some striking things here. Uh, notice the Lord declares his absolute sovereignty, the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as he's talking to these envoys from different nations, go back to your master. Tell them it's the Lord of Israel, the Lord of hosts, who by his power has made the earth and rules over it, men and animals, and he can dispose of it however he sees fit. He gives it to whomever he pleases, and it pleases him to give it to Nebuchadnezzar, king, ruler of Babylon. Notice, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar did not worship Yahweh, and yet he was a servant of the Lord. He was the instrument in the Lord's hands to accomplish the Lord's purposes. The Lord can refer to this pagan uh, ruler as my servant. And therefore, to oppose Nebuchadnezzar is to oppose the Lord. My servant, I've given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All nations shall serve him, his son, his grandson, until the time his own land, for his own land comes, and then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. A couple of things going on here. At the time, 
that would have been thought unthinkable. Babylon was so strong, so powerful, so dominant that the idea of there not being there was almost unthinkable. And yet Jeremiah points toward that time when that, in fact, would happen under the Persians. Uh, And at which point Nebuchadnezzar himself, or at least Babylon and his descendants, uh, will fall under the yoke of other nations. And you see here, certainly, uh, the fact that history is littered with the the remains of, of once... Uh, at least commonly thought, invincible empires. Nations come and nations go. Mighty Babylon, Persia, Rome, and so it goes. Uh, and that's that's the message that he declares. But then he goes on in verse 8 to say, well, if anyone will not serve, then the Lord's going to punish that nation. By the way, this is the only time uh, where the sword, famine, and pestilence is used of other nations other than Israel, other than Judah. And that same, those same symbols of the judgment of God are applied to these other nations. As they're thinking about possibly rebelling, Jeremiah is saying, no, if you don't serve Nebuchadnezzar, then the Lord is going to bring judgment on your nations. So don't listen to your prophets, diviners, dreamers, fortune tellers, or sorcerers, things that were forbidden in Israel, although by this point some of that was there, but certainly not in these pagan nations around them. They don't listen to them. You know, if they tell you you're going to win, it's a lie. Uh, the Lord, on the other hand, says, verse 11, any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its land to work it, and it can continue to go on. So a message to the nations of this coalition. Then he speaks basically the same message to King Zedekiah in verse 12. Spoke in like manner, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, serve him and his people, and live. Why suffer the destruction of the judgment of God by your refusal to surrender and submit to this discipline? Don't believe the prophets who say, nah, you won't serve the king of Babylon. Now listen, they're prophesying a lie. I've not sent them, says the Lord, prophesying falsely in my name. And by the way, he says uh, in the end of verse 15, with the result, I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. The end of Second Kings records that Zedekiah, in fact, was captured, taken by Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, the last thing he saw before his eyes were put out was the slaughter of his sons. Then he was blinded and taken into captivity in uh, Babylon where he died because he listened to the wrong man. And then in verse 16, uh, Jeremiah says, I spoke to the priests and to all the people. So basically the same message now to this third audience, priests, religious leaders, all the people. Don't listen to the words of the false prophets. Apparently this was going on, saying uh, in verse 16, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back to Babylon. It's a lie they're prophesying to you. This first incursion, Nebuchadnezzar had taken away the nobles, some of the upper crust, uh, as well as some of the riches of Jerusalem, uh, articles there in the temple. And again, Second Kings talks about that. Um, but there was this message, and we see it typified in 28, uh, that those things would come back. And Jeremiah basically repeats the same message. But interestingly enough, verse 18, he says, If they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them pray that that happens. Let them pray Uh, Let him intercede with the Lord of hosts that the vessels that are remaining will not be taken out. Kind of proposes a test. Let's see how how good they are in prayer. 
Let them pray that those articles will not be taken. Any further articles won't be taken out of the city by Nebuchadnezzar. Why does he say that? Well, they should pray that because Jeremiah says in verse 19, thus says the Lord concerning the pillars, the sea, the stands, the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which he didn't take earlier when he took into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jeconiah, that's Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the nobles. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, concerning the vessels, verse 22, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until that day when I visit them, declares the Lord, then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. What of an uncharacteristic note of hope here in, in Jeremiah. But remember, his commission was to also to speak of building and planting as well as the judgment of the Lord. Well, we can cheat and see what happens because we have Second Kings. We'll turn to Second uh, Kings chapter 25, verse 13. Challenge the false prophets. They didn't think of themselves that way, but uh, that's what they were. To pray that no more articles would be taken out of the city. Jeremiah, on the other hand, goes on record saying the Lord has told him they would be. Second Kings 25, verse 13. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also, and the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea, and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. Babylon took it. They've been beyond, beyond weighing, but he managed to lift them somehow and get them out of, out of Jerusalem and back to Babylon. So Jeremiah was, was right. Of course, that was after this, um, but we, we were peeking ahead. Well, now we come to 28, which is the opposition, uh, the, the contrary message. The same year, reign of Zedekiah and so forth, Hananiah, son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke in the presence of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'll bring back all the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar took, bring back to this place, uh, he may have been looking around and saw a receptive audience. And he goes on record here, not just for the, the, the articles of the temple, utensils and things, but people. I'll also bring back to this place Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. You've got to wonder what Zedekiah thought of that, who's currently the puppet king. Uh, but many people still saw Jehoiachin as the rightful ruler. And uh, Hananiah prophesies that he, in fact, will return and resume his reign. All the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon declares the Lord, I'll break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Well, Jeremiah, it's, it's almost humorous. Jeremiah loves it. He says, amen. Preach it, brother. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words you prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. You know, I think Jeremiah is sincere. I think he would have loved nothing more than to see that reversed to see everything come back to Jerusalem, to see the exiles brought back to Jerusalem. Because he loved Judah. He loved Jerusalem. He loved his country. And he was certainly not second to Hananiah in patriotism. We'd have been fine with Jeremiah if that's how it worked out. But Jeremiah knew better. He would have loved to have believed what Hananiah, whose name means the Lord is gracious, uh, what he is, is preaching 
But he says in verse 7, yet hear now this word that I speak in your hearing. He goes on in verse 8, prophets preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war and famine and pestilence. Uh, as for the prophets who prophesied peace, when it comes to pass, we known the Lord has sent him as a prophet. He said, look, here's, here's what we've heard. Here's what prophets in the past have, have spoken, these messages of judgment and so forth. And if a prophet prophesies peace, well, time will tell. You know, if it comes true, he's from the Lord. Very reasonable response. But at this point, Hananiah gets a little bit violent, takes the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah and makes his own symbol. He breaks them. And he says in the presence of all the people, this is taking place before a large audience here, Thus says the Lord, even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. Jeremiah the prophet went his way. Apparently he realized he wasn't going to get anywhere by continuing to argue, and so he just left. He walked out. And so we read in verse 12, sometime after he had done that, broken those, the Lord comes back to Jeremiah and says, go back to Hananiah. Tell him, you've broken wooden bars, but you made in their place bars of iron. In fact, it was a fulfilled prophecy. Uh, there was some further rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, which bought a little bit of peace for a time. But then that, uh, that yoke of iron came down from the Babylonians, and that was that. And uh, Jeremiah speaks these last words very sternly to Hananiah. The Lord hasn't sent you. You're preaching a lie. You're misleading the people. And that prophecy of the Lord that uh, he would die because of what he has said. And in fact, he prophesied freedom for them in two years, but in two months, he was dead. Now, what are we to make of this? If you were there and listening to this and hearing this, you think, okay, well, how do we assess what we're hearing? What are we to make of what we're hearing? And it's tough. Both men claim to speak in the name of the Lord. We've seen that. Uh, Jeremiah 27, 2, thus says the Lord to me. Jeremiah 28, uh, verse 2, thus said, Hananiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, both claiming to speak in the name of the Lord. And in fact, if you're looking at weighing these two men, Hananiah probably, at least on first impression, appears to have greater credibility. I like the way one commentator puts it. He says this, Hananiah was a respectable establishment figure with the support of the most influential circles in the land, whereas Jeremiah was an outsider, an eccentric, and dressed with a yoke around his neck, so it was difficult not to question his sanity as well as his orthodoxy. Uh, that's, that's this figure that, uh, that they see. He's wearing an oxen yoke. Um, so, yeah, initially they might have thought, well, Hananiah seems to carry a little more credibility with him. They're both referred to, by the way, in here as a prophet. 28.1, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon. In verse 5, then the prophet Jeremiah. It's interesting. Uh, you, you're probably familiar with the, Greek, the old Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was done uh, sometime after then in the intertestamental period called the Septuagint. Uh, for the number 70, uh, it had to do with how a legend about how it was written, the 70 men or 72 men. There was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's very useful because it actually is much older than the Hebrew manuscripts we have now. So by studying that Greek text of the translation of the Old Hebrew 
Old Testament, they actually get through that a window into a much older Hebrew text than the manuscripts we have now. Well, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, translates when it refers to Hananiah as a prophet, it refers to him as a false prophet, a pseudo-prophetes, false prophet. But in fact, the Hebrew text refers to him as a prophet. But, and that, that fits, because at the time, he was. He was a court prophet, peace prophet, you know, prophesying peace, but this official figure. Uh, but there he is prophesying. They're both referred to as a prophet. And what do you do? Well, let me suggest to you several things that were true then that are true now that help in assessing conflicting messages, especially uh, when people are claiming to speak from the Bible. Uh, you know, if someone's speaking from the Koran or some other text, you, you have pretty much a good idea what to think. But what about when people come with messages from the Bible? Uh, and that can be difficult. Someone handed me this morning. Uh, this this publication, the Watchtower magazine, with an article on what is the Holy Spirit. He said he thought I might find that interesting. Well, they're claiming to speak from the Bible. Of course, they have their own translation of it. But uh, what are we? How are we to measure some of these things? Well, let's look at what's going on here. Uh, some things that come out of what Jeremiah has said, particularly. Number one is this: the true message of God is always in accord with His covenant. It is always in accord with his covenant. What Hananiah has done here is take God's covenant or a specific part of it and make it absolute, namely blessings. Look at verse 2. I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I'll bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house. Verse 4, I'll also bring back to this place Jeconiah and all of the exiles. Blessing. Now, certainly, there is warrant for, for looking for blessing on the people of God, looking for blessing on Jerusalem. But that's only part of the picture. Uh, as, as you look at the Scriptures, particularly when God made his covenant, it was conditional. You look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. There were blessings for faithfulness. You know, as you're faithful to the Lord, obey him, I'll bless you. You know, when you're in, the, in your home and in the field and your work and all these places. But if there's disobedience unfaithfulness, waywardness. The Lord threatens these curses upon his people. And you'll recall, as we've looked at Jeremiah, Jeremiah preached that conditional covenant. Even in the middle of his judgment, messages of judgment, he calls the people to repent and receive the blessings from the Lord. Well, then it got to a certain point of no return where the Lord said, don't pray for them, you know, it doesn't matter. I've determined that I'm going to bring discipline against Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. However, if they want to be spared the worst of the misery, they need to submit to that by surrendering to Nebuchadnezzar. So even in there, even once he's determined to judge them and discipline them in that way, he says there's mercy if they will just submit to this, hard as it is to do, which they didn't do, and they suffered terribly. We need to recognize that that's true of the Christian life now. Even if you are a Christian, to persist in, in, in disobedience to the Lord may bring the chastening and discipline of God on you to draw you back to himself. Or, in persisting enough in it, and that comes through the church as well, to demonstrate that your heart isn't right with the Lord, that your heart is not regenerate. Now, how would this look today? Well, one area that I think you do see this sort of unconditional blessing is in a lot of the prosperity teaching that seems to indicate, you know, as a Christian, or if you just have enough faith in Christ, 
uh, that God blesses, and all he does is bless. Well, ultimately for the Christian, everything the Lord brings into our life is blessing, either directly or indirectly. But sometimes those blessings come, and sometimes the best blessings come through hardship, through suffering, through affliction, through difficulty, uh, through the discipline and chastening of the Lord. And so that covenant is still in effect. That is our covenant of grace. Now, praise God, Christ, for his people, has suffered the true judgment of God for sin, for unbelief, for rebellion. But we need to recognize that even as his children, God doesn't give us the right to just run amok and live however we please, just as good parents don't allow their children to do that as well. And so the true message of God is always in accord with his covenant, whether it's a sort of a one-sided prosperity teaching or licentiousness that Paul had to deal with. You know, now you can just go on sinning that grace might increase or that our bodies don't matter, so it doesn't matter what we do, and God doesn't care what we do in our bodies. All these kinds of philosophies or teachings that came in and minimized that two-sided balance of the covenant. God has redeemed us by his grace. He promises blessings to us as we walk with him. And yet, the way of the transgressor, even a Christian transgressor, could still be very hard. Remember that. The true message of God is always in accord with his covenant. Hananiah was half right. God blesses, but only those who are walking with him. Uh, it's certainly in Christ, but even in Christ, uh, we still want to walk with and pursue the Lord. Second uh, thing that we learn from this passage is this. The true message of God usually crosses the grain of our own natural desires. The true message of God almost always crosses the grain of our own natural desires. We see this in verses 5 and 6, when Jeremiah responds to Hananiah by saying, Amen, may the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words you prophesied come true. Because when the people heard that, that was appealing. They liked that. They want that. Even Jeremiah himself likes that and would hope that that would be true because that appeals to their patriotism. That appeals to their comfort. That appeals to their security. That appeals to their sin. Who needs to repent? It's all going to work out right. You know, God's going to, God's going to fix it all. No need for repentance here. We've already heard from this, this prophet that this is how it's going to work out. But you know, as well as I do, that the true message of God, the message of his grace, the message of his work, crosses. It runs against the grain of our natural inclinations and desires. Israel didn't want to repent. And then when God said, well, you know, that day's, that day's gone, that train's left the station, Nebuchadnezzar's coming, you need to submit to him. They didn't want to do that either. And they suffered terribly. But as we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see the same thing. Uh, Romans 7 typifies this so powerfully as Paul describes his own struggle with sin as a believer. And just listen to this. Listen, listen to the tension, the agony, the struggle here. Uh, Romans 7:14. We know that the law is spiritual, right? God's word, God's truth. But I am of the flesh. Paul's not saying he's unredeemed, but he's saying there is that fallen human nature there. God's word is good. It's true. It's right. But I'm of the flesh. And therefore, God's word and I have this way of, of clashing. 
sold under sin, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, my fallen nature. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so that's the struggle we have, even as regenerate people that Paul is describing there, where we do love God's law and want to do it, and yet we find ourselves disobeying it. But we also, and Paul doesn't really go into this here, we also find there's still a love for sin. And there's still sometimes when we find God's law difficult, sin is more attractive. Part of it's temptation. If it weren't attractive, it wouldn't be tempting. God's truth crosses the grain of our natural desires. Now, thankfully, by his grace, he's working on those new desires, developing desires for holiness, for repentance, for obedience. But um, sometimes that doesn't come easily. And that's what's happening here. Hananiah was preaching a message that people loved. There are a lot of preachers that do that today, that affirm you, that make you feel good. There's no need to change. God loves you just the way you are. He wants to be your friend. Everything's good. You're just going out there, and God's going to be your life coach, and he's going to help you make it all all right. Rather than the biblical message of we are under God's wrath because of our sin, we need to repent, we need to turn to him, acknowledge that our whole life has been wrong, and believe in a crucified Savior so we can be right with God. God's truth crosses the grain of our natural desires. Beware of preachers who do nothing but make you feel good all the time. Because the true message of God at times will be difficult. It will hurt. It will be hard. It will be humbling. It will be unpalatable. At least in the short term. It's always sweet in the long run. But at least short term, it may be very hard. Remember R.C. Sproul describing his experience of, of struggling with doctrines of sovereign grace. And he finally conceded that the Bible did teach God's eternal election of those who would be saved. And his statement was, well, Lord, I see it's in the Bible, so I have to believe it, but I don't have to like it. That was a hard truth, and yet it became a sweet truth to him, obviously, but uh, God's truth crosses the grain of our natural desires. Number three, the true message of God accords, always accords, with previous revelation, verses 7 and 8. Interesting how, how Jeremiah puts this. The prophets who preceded you, this is 8, you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence. Jeremiah is basically saying, whose message fits best with prior revelation? What was the message of earlier prophets? Well, it wasn't always judgment, but there was often that that threat of judgment because of that conditional nature of the covenant. When the people were wayward, they preached the judgment of God on them, warned them. That was the prophet's job, to warn them, look, you're going astray. Remember the stipulations of the covenant. You're going to bring down these curses on you. You need to turn back. Jeremiah said, my message fits with theirs. If somebody comes along preaching peace, well, you know, if it comes true, then he is, he's validated. But Jeremiah is saying, whose message fits better with the general tenor of what the prophets have said? And it's Jeremiah's message. Uh, Jeremiah is in accord with previous revelation, much more than Hananiah uh, was at all. And that's always true. 
You know, to the law and to the testimony. That's how we eval- evaluate what's being taught. Does it fit with the revelation God has given us in his word? You know, we ought to be like the Bereans. We're searching the scriptures to see if what we're hearing is true, to see if it fits with what the Bible is teaching. So the true message of God is in accord with his covenant, number one. Number two, the true message of God usually crosses the grain of our natural desires. Number three, the true message of God accords with previous revelation. And then finally, number four, the true message of God proves to be, well, true. Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22, uh, early on, Moses gives a standard for what determines if a prophet's of the Lord or not. If you say in your heart, how may we know the word the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Short term, Jeremiah proves validated at the end of the chapter when he says that the Hananiah is going to die, and in fact, two months later, he does just that. Which itself is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, verse 20 prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now, we might think, well, he should be, he should be put to death. But here, Hananiah, who wasn't speaking in the name of false gods, but the name of the Lord, was himself put to death by the Lord, and perhaps because of the extremity of the circumstances, the Lord himself serves out that uh, sentence of death. But it's also long-term with Babylon, as we read from 2 Kings. Jeremiah's word proved true. The other prophets could pray all they want, but the Lord had said through Jeremiah that the rest of what they had was going off to Babylon. And in fact, they would come back and be restored. Both of those things happened. The vessels were carried out, further exile took place, but then in the Lord's time, some 70 years later, they return and are restored back to the land. So short-term, Jeremiah is vindicated. Long-term, Jeremiah's vindicated. The word of a prophet always comes true. And that's how we know. Well, some things we can know because they've already happened. This all obviously happened a long, long time ago. What about things now? Well, sometimes we just have to wait and see. Have to wait and see what happens. But God's truth fits what is there. If that's profound, it's because Francis Schaeffer said it, not me. It fits what is there. And Schaefer himself said, you know, the truths of the Scripture fit real life. They fit reality. Uh, uh, they fit the nature of what this world is like and what I'm like and what people are like and what events are like. It makes sense in the real world. And so as we look at what Jeremiah is saying here, we learn that the true message of God proves to be true. We don't believe in Christ because he works. We're not pragmatists here. But it is, in fact, true that those who have repented and believed in Christ have found that everything he says is true, that it's real, and that it fits with the world in which we live. So who do we listen to? Which message do we believe? Well, these guidelines from Jeremiah uh, should have been clues to people in his day, and certainly with the hindsight we have should be clues and helps to us today as well. So let's pray. Father, we do pray to be led by your spirit, to be attuned to your truth. Uh, Father, give us grace uh, to specifically see error when we confront it. But even if we can't specifically name it, Father, 
to have a sense as we evaluate by these guidelines uh, and by the leading of your spirit what is true and what is not, what is biblical and what is not. Father, keep us from error. Help us to grow in our knowledge of and our love for your truth. Help us always, Father, to discern your voice. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.